let me uh, just begin this way. So I've had the, the privilege to get to do all sorts of really cool things over the course of my life. Being in ministry, you, you know, you don't necessarily uh, live the high life, but sometimes you get some real privileges. And one of the privileges that, that I got was uh, probably about 10 years ago now, I got to go to the Chick-fil-A bowl game down in Atlanta. And so Steve Briggs invited me, we drove down there, and uh, we uh, basically got to go in this like little VIP room at the beginning. And in the VIP room, there were all these Chick-fil-A people, there were all these Chick-fil-A nuggets and sandwiches and Coke and Dr. Pepper, it was absolutely amazing. I can't begin to tell you how many chicken nuggets I ate. I didn't have to wear chapstick for like an entire week afterwards, it was amazing. I had trouble opening doorknobs because my hands were covered with peanut grease. So at that little VIP meet and greet thing at the beginning, um, Steve and I were, you know, found ourselves in a little pocket of people with Dan Cathy. There were probably three or four or five of us there. I don't remember exactly. And um, at some point in time, his handler came up and said, hey, Dan, it's time for you to go down to the field. He was going to play the national anthem on his trumpet. And uh, so he just told Steve and I, I was like, hey, come with me. And so we're like, okay. And so we followed his handler. And we went to this one particular checkpoint. And, uh, you know, when Dan checked in, he just turned to, uh, to Steve and I, and again, whoever was with us, and he goes, hey, they're with me. And so we went through this checkpoint. And we went down like an elevator down to the ground level. And then we walked through some tunnels, and we came to another checkpoint. And there was a, you know, a couple of security guards there. And again, Dan Cathy just told the security guards, hey, they're with me. And so we got to go through this checkpoint. And then we finally got to this tunnel that was, you know, looking out onto the, the football field there in the Georgia Dome or whatever, whatever uh, stadium we were in. And there was one more checkpoint. And, uh, and Dan Cathy again talked to the security guards and he said, hey, they're with me. And so we got to go through this tunnel out onto the field there in the Georgia Dome. And again, it was LSU playing Georgia Tech. And we just kind of walked right out on the field. It was a very bizarre circumstance. And we were standing there surrounded by ex, you know, who knows how many thousands of people right there on the field. And Dan Cathy played the uh, national anthem on his trumpet. Anyway, the reason I tell this story is to simply say the reason that we were able to make it down into this place of privilege is because we were in this group because we were with Dan Cathy. Now, over the last four weeks, we've been looking at this concept, this idea of being in Christ or union with Christ. And what we see is actually in Scripture that the word or the term Christian is only used three times. But in the writings of Paul alone, the terms in Christ or with Christ are used like 164 times. It was the primary way that Paul talked about what it means to be a Christian. It means he would say that we are in Christ, that we're in him. And because we are in him, we're given all of these privileges and rights of being in Jesus. That's sort of the idea. And so over the course of the last month, we've looked at how one of the privileges of being in Christ is that we are righteous. Now, we look around at each other, we're married to people, we have children, people know us well, and we know that we're not all that righteous, right? I mean, we make mistakes over and over and over again, but because we're in Christ, God sees us as righteous. He has the authority to declare us righteous. He's the judge, and he looks at us, he looks at you, and he looks at me, and because we're in Christ, we get the declaration of being righteous before God. And it's not just a righteousness that covers over our past. It's a righteousness that goes all the way into the future. We are eternally righteous with God because we are in Christ. We're not only righteous, but we're related. That is a, basically a, a way that I could put an R on the front end of the term adoption. And, uh, but the idea there is because we're in Christ, we're adopted into God's family. We have a seat at the table. 
We have a bedroom in God's mansion. We are in the family because we're in Christ. Then we are redeemed. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. We, we took a look at how Scripture has this concept, this idea of slavery. In the ancient Near East and the ancient world, slavery was utterly normal. Unfortunately, it's more normal than we realize today. I think 30 million people currently in today's world live in slavery. And so there's this idea of redemption, where, which is where we're bought out of slavery. And so we took a look at how we're bought out of our, uh, our enslavement to sin and to the law, and we're set free. It's a wonderful picture of being in Christ and being set free. In other words, God has something in store for us. He's making us into something new. Today, we're going to look at the last uh, sort of benefit of being united with Christ, of being in Him. But before we do that, let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, I pray that we would learn to see ourselves as being in Your Son, Jesus, Father, that we would um, struggle to believe but, but would fight to believe that we are in your son Jesus because of our faith in him. And Father, that's a faith that you've given us, so says Ephesians 2. And so, Father, that's a gift. But let us believe, Father, that at your invitation that we are united with your son Jesus and therefore we are righteous, we are related, we are redeemed, and Father, we are reconciled with you. We pray all these things in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So St. Patrick's Cathedral exists in Dublin, Ireland. So got a picture of it up on the screen right here. It uh, was completed back in 1191, and so it's been around for a long, long time. Beautiful Gothic building. Now, if you were to visit St. Patrick's Cathedral today, you would walk through uh, the main door, and there's a, a little museum that exists inside the cathedral there. And uh, in one of the areas of the museum, there is a old wooden door that hangs from the ceiling. And as you look at this old wooden door, what you see is that there is a hole in the door that's about 18 inches tall and about six inches wide. And so there's a picture uh, there of that door hanging from the, uh, in that, from the ceiling of that room. The story is this. Um, back in 1492, which is a well-known date for those of us who live in America, there were two families um, that were warring with one another. They were feuding with one another. There were the Fitzgeralds, and then there were the Butlers. And so they were having a feud, and you may find this surprising or maybe ironic, but they were uh, feuding over politics. Who knew? And this was before Twitter. And uh, so they had this feud going on about some local politics happening, the Fitzgeralds, the Butlers. And they decided that in their feud, the best thing to do was to settle it on the battlefield. And so they uh, lined up on a field that was just outside uh, of Dublin, Ireland, uh, just outside the city gates there, and they engaged in battle. And very quickly, it was uh, clear that the butlers were losing that battle, and the Fitzgeralds were winning. And so the butlers, um, knowing they were losing the battle, ran off the battlefield through the city gates of Dublin, ran into St. Patrick's Cathedral, the one that still stands today, and uh, they were being pursued by the Fitzgeralds. In fact, uh, there are scenes described of how some of the inner rooms of the cathedral had arrows sticking in the wall and sticking in the pews and even sticking in some of the statues that lined the inside of, uh, of the cathedral. And so the butlers ran into this one large room that was a conference room, and they slammed this wooden door behind them, and they locked it behind them. And the Fitzgeralds banged on the door, and they demanded that the butlers come out and fight. But the butlers, of course, uh, refused, and they stayed where they were safe. 
And so after a stalemate of a little while, Gerald Fitzgerald, who was sort of the leader of the Fitzgerald clan, decided that enough was enough, enough blood had been spilt. And so he went up to the door and he knocked on the door and he began speaking through the door and he offered a truce. He said, hey, if you come out, we will be done fighting and we will lay down our arms. To which the butlers responded, right, sure. Anyway, and so the, the stalemate continued until finally Gerald Fitzgerald called for an ax and he hacked a hole again, 18 inches by about six inches in this door. And he took off the armor that covered his forearm and he took off his armored glove and he stuck his hand and his arm through this hole that had been hacked in the door. And immediately someone inside took a sword and they, just kidding, that didn't happen. Anyway, (laughs) someone inside, Black James Butler was his name, did not take a sword, did not take an ax, but instead took his own hand and grasped the hand of Gerald Fitzgerald, thus uh, creating peace and engaging in reconciliation. Now, that's uh, an interesting story. It's a true story. In fact, the sign that if you can see next to the door there, is, the door is called the Door of Reconciliation. And I don't know the story well enough to know who was to blame. I don't know if it was the Fitzgeralds who started it or if it was the Butlers who started it. I don't know who was in the right. I don't know who was in the wrong. But what I do know is that in this case, that reconciliation occurred because the one in power decided that reconciliation was better than revenge. Now, this concept of reconciliation is found throughout the pages of Scripture. It's found in the Old Testament. It's found in the New Testament. You'll remember the story of Joseph and his brothers, that Joseph reconciled with his brothers, though he could have taken revenge. We know the story of Jacob and Esau. Again, Esau could have taken revenge, but again, offered reconciliation. We know the story of Peter betraying Jesus, but Jesus meets him at the shore of the Sea of Galilee and offers reconciliation to Peter even after his betrayal. Today, we're going to be looking at a couple different passages that explain why this concept, this idea of reconciliation is so important to us, not only in terms of understanding how the gospel applies to us, but also uh, it gives us a clue of how it is that we're supposed to live life and who it is that we're supposed to be as those who have been reconciled to God. Now, the first thing we're going to look at, first passage we're going to look at is Ephesians 2. And what Ephesians 2 is going to show us is that if we are apart from Christ, if we are not united to him, then we are far from and we are hostile to God. Look at verses 13 through 17. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Ephesians 2 highlights our dilemma. Before we were in Christ, we were far off. That is, we were far away from God. If you think about the story of Genesis, you see Adam and Eve rebelling against God's leadership, rebelling against his authority, and as a result, being cast out of the garden and out of God's presence. They were far away from him. In Jesus' teaching, you have the story of the prodigal son running away from 
the Father. And in Jesus' ministry, you have the story of the lost sheep wandering away from the shepherd. And the point of each of these stories is to highlight our human dilemma, that if we are not in Christ, we are separated from God. We are alienated from Him. And it wasn't just that we wandered away from God. Many of us know that we actively ran away from God. This passage makes it clear that we were not just alienated, that we didn't just wander away, but that we were hostile to God. It uses that term a couple different times. And then two times in these five verses, Paul references that hostility. Even in Colossians 1, he makes the same point, but he elaborates a bit further. Verses 21 and 22 of Colossians 1 say this, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. In other words, you are hostile. You are alienated. We, Christian and I, that is, are very, very, very blessed. We're very, very fortunate that our kids love the Lord and are following Jesus. And we're fortunate that they seem to respect and love us too. As a former youth pastor, however, I've been privy to many young people who were alienated and hostile to their parents. I think of Nathan, I think about Kate, I think about Jessica. The list goes on and on. Each of these kids were hostile with their parents for different reasons. Uh, Once I got a phone call, probably 2 a.m., from a family member of Nathan, and uh, he had physically attacked his own mother in a drunken rage. He blamed her for his parents' divorce. Kate once got into a physical altercation with her mom upstairs, and the fight proceeded until they fell down the stairs together. Jessica spent much of her energy trying to punish her mom through self-destructive behavior until eventually she ended up in the juvenile detention center. And as you might imagine, there were extenuating circumstances in each of these relationships, but what was clear is that these kids' relationships with their parents were very broken. They were estranged, and they were hostile towards one another. Some of you are estranged from God right now, right? You're very, very conscious of this. You feel far, far away from Him. Maybe that matters to you, and maybe it doesn't matter to you. I think it should. Others of you are openly hostile to God. You don't want to surrender your hearts or your minds or your lives to a being whose values are so clearly at odds with your own values. To you, God seems so repressive. He seems repressive morally and financially and relationally. You've probably said or thought on more than one occasion, I can't worship a God who fill in the blanks. Or how can people believe in a God that, again, fill in the blanks with your thing of choice. But ultimately, it's you against him. That's absolutely how you feel about it. It's how you view it. There's a battle raging between the two of you for who gets to determine what's true and what's false, what's right, what's wrong, what's good, and what's bad. You're alienated and you're hostile to God. Others of you can remember being far away from God for most of your life. Maybe you avoided Him. Maybe you kept Him at arm's length. Maybe maybe you were more hostile towards Him. But somehow, some way, God captured your heart, and now you're actually walking with Him 
and you've never felt more alive than you do right now. You can remember the nihilism. You can remember the darkness, the exhaustion. You can remember the emptiness of being far from God, but then something changed. And it's stories like yours that lead us to this next point. Apart from God, we were far from and hostile to God. But if we are in Christ, then we have been reconciled to God. Let's look at verses 17 through 21 of 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There is so much in this passage. There's an entire sermon or, or five in this whole passage right here. Verse 17 tells us that if we're in Christ, that we are a new creation. It tells us that the old has passed away and that something new has begun. We have a little garden in our backyard. I say we, it's actually Krista's garden. She plants tomatoes and peppers and kale and you know, all sorts of things back in this little garden. Each year we have an ongoing battle with a particular kind of caterpillar called a tomato hornworm. And I don't know what that sounds like to you, but it's as gross and nasty as it sounds. Tomato hornworms are giant, fat, bright green, alien-esque looking creatures that will absolutely ravage a tomato plant. Since Krista has decided to go the organic route in gardening, we don't use pesticides. So instead, what we have to do is we have to engage them in the old-fashioned way. We have to walk through the different sort of rows of the garden taking off these giant, fat, squishy caterpillars by hand, and then we put it on a little concrete pad, and we pick up a flip-flop. And I won't finish the story, but you get the idea. Here are a few pictures right here. Just kidding. We don't have any. <laughs> now, here's what we know. We all know, because we were all in kindergarten, or we had a third-grade science class, where we learned that these very squishy, ugly, alien-ass-looking caterpillars that do incredible damage to gardens and to crops eventually turn into beautiful butterflies that actually pollinate flowers and trees. They become new things altogether. They become new creatures. The old creature is destructive, it's ugly, and the new creature is beautiful, and it actually creates life. When we are reconciled to God, that's exactly what happens to us. Some of you are very familiar with that transformation. When we were far from God and hostile to Him, we tried, we were always trying to determine for ourselves what way of living life was best. We tried to determine what was true. We tried to determine for ourselves what was false. This is the story of Genesis chapter 3, by the way. We tried to determine for ourselves what was good apart from God. Maybe, maybe we tried to blindly follow our hearts and our passions, and we ended up worn out we are ended up in darkness, and then something occurred. In one way or another, God pursued us. Maybe it was through a song, maybe it was through a book, maybe it was through another person. But eventually we gave up, and we gave in, and God began to work 
in us. He began to change us. Our desires changed. Our hearts changed. Our thinking changed. We became new creations. The Holy Spirit has begun a work in us, a work in you, that according to Galatians 5 yields the following, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We are new creatures. And all of this happens, the old passing away, the new creation, the new abilities, the new desires, because we have been reconciled to God, or to be precise, because God has accomplished that reconciliation between us. He hacked a hole in the door, and he thrust his hand through the opening. We were far away. We were hostile to God, but God pursued us. He sought us out, and he brought us near to him through his son, Christ. In its most literal sense, the Greek word for reconciliation is an economic term that essentially means that a debt has been paid uh, or for the accounts to be reconciled. You've heard that terminology uh, before. But in a metaphorical sense, the word means it's an act in such a way so that the relational tension or drama or alienation or hostility that exists between two people is worked through in such a way so that there is finally peace. So the idea of reconciliation is peace between two people. What 2 Corinthians is communicating to us is that if we're in Christ, then we have been fully reconciled to God, with God, that we have peace with Him because of Him. The account has been closed and the debt has been paid by Jesus. The reason this matters so much to us is because most of us actually are still living as if we owe God, right? We're, that's the way we react. It's the way we respond. It's the way that we interact with God. We approach God like the prodigal son who basically formulated this idea of being made right with his father by suggesting to his dad that he work as a hired hand in order to pay off his debts. God, however, has already made us right with him by reconciling us to himself the good father in the story never let the son finish his, uh, his offer. He simply gave him the ring, gave him the robe, and put shoes on his feet and threw a party. And so now we obey God, but the fuel that fuels our obedience is gratitude, not guilt. The fuel is that we are moved by friendship instead of fear. And this ultimately, all this reconciliation, this offer of peace from God to us, this should tell us something about who God is. He desires to be reunited with you. He desires to be in a relationship with you. You want to be known? God wants to know you, and he wants to be known by you. You want to be pursued? God has sought you out. He is seeking you still. You want to be loved? John 3.16 tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son in order to be reconciled with you. So, we have been or are alienated with God if we are not in Christ. However, God overcame that alienation and that hostility by reconciling us to himself. If we look back at 2 Corinthians, the same passage we just read a moment ago, 
what we see is that this is not the end of the story. Look at verses 18 through 20, and what we see here is that God has a job for us to do. Verse 18, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So all of a sudden, we find ourselves in uncomfortable territory. So far, all I've really asked you to do is to give intellectual assent to a couple of truths. Number one, that you were or are far away from God, and as a result, you're hostile to Him. Number two, that if you're in Christ, you've been reconciled to God. Your task in both of those was to simply consider the truth of each of those statements. But now, all of a sudden, we're being asked to do something. In verse 18, we're told, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. The word translated ministry here is diakonia. It sounds familiar because it's the same word that we use to translate uh, the term deacon in the context of the church. Now, in uh, the ancient Near East, a deacon was someone who waited tables, a waiter or a waitress, a servant. In the same way that a waiter or waitress brings food and drinks, so we now are to carry the message of reconciliation to those people who are in our domains. The message of reconciliation is clarified in verse 19. It says this, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Essentially, the message is that God desires so much to be reunited with you that he was willing to forgive your failures by canceling the debt himself. So you are called now to be a deacon of reconciliation. You are called to be a waiter or a waitress for the gospel. If you're in Christ, then you've been reconciled and you've been called to this ministry of reconciliation. This ministry requires at least two different things. First, it means that we should be people who are quick to reconcile with others. And secondly, it means that we should be people who serve by taking the message of the gospel to those who are far from and hostile to God. When I ran across the story of St. Patrick's Cathedral and the Door of Reconciliation, I immediately thought, man, it would be so cool to have an actual wooden door that hangs in our great room to remind us of the kind of people that we are called to be. We're called to be people of reconciliation. As Christians, we should be courageous and humble and dogged in our pursuit of reconciliation with others. We, we all know that it's impossible not to have some level of conflict in relationships. In fact, if you don't have conflict in a relationship, it's either because you're not actually in a relationship or because you're showing up in a way where you're hiding who you really are. There are always going to be disagreements in relationships. There are always going to be hurt feelings. There are even going to be betrayals, as we well know, in relationships. What is possible is what we do with those hurts and with those people who have hurt us and whom we have hurt. As followers of Jesus, let us be known for our pursuit of reconciliation with other people. And let's start with those who are closest to us. Husbands, 
pursue reconciliation with your wives, right? Parents, seek reconciliation with your children. Friends, seek reconciliation with your friends. The list of possible reconciliatory actions goes on and on and on, but let's be known for our courage and our humility and our pursuit of reconciliation because we have been reconciled to God. Of course, the ministry of reconciliation ultimately means that we are people who proclaim to others who God is and what he's done in our lives. He is the one who has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his beloved son. One of my great honors in life is to tell people about who God is. It's kind of built into my job description, thankfully. What I get to do is I get to tell people that God is the author of reality, but he's also the father of the prodigal son. I get to tell people that God is the one whose mercies are new every single morning. And I get to tell people that he is the one who will make all things new. I get to tell people that God is the I am. He is the person who says, I am who I am. But he is also the one who is with us in the valley of the shadow of death. And as Psalm 103 tells us, God is compassionate with us in our brokenness. He's compassionate with us in our sin. Listen to the words of Psalm 103. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed, he remembers that we are dust. What a great reminder. What a great reminder to know that we serve a God whose heart is to be reconciled with those who have wandered or run or been hostile to him. What a great picture of a good 